Radio. Welcome into South of Scruffy Podcast. I am Ben Fields. This is my podcast. If this is your first time joining us here on South of Scruffy, thanks for being here. I do it every week with the help of my producer, Sam Thomas. We drop a new episode of South of Scruffy every single Monday. We have done that since the first week of 2020. And since you guys won't stop showing up, we continue to do this. So thank you. So uh, a, a lot of you know that uh, I talk to a lot of artists and entertainers on the show, musicians, directors, cinematographers, and the like. But uh, every so often we'll have you know, a professional athlete or an academic or intellectual who's doing some meaningful work out there. And today happens to be one of the latter. I have Jennifer Ward on the show today. So Jennifer Ward is a program director at the University of Tennessee Institute of Agriculture Extension. Uh, Jennifer's working hard with the university and multiple programs there to help solve the problem of food insecurity in the state of Tennessee. Before Jennifer got to the University of Tennessee Extension, she spent nearly a decade uh, before that helping refugees from war-torn countries or humanitarian crises across the globe uh, relocate and resettle in the United States and abroad. So she's been doing it, man. She's a real boss. And uh, she told me also to tell you that she wants you to read black women, read their books. Uh, we, uh, we left a few links in the show notes to some of her favorite authors that she alluded to in the podcast. We talked about that a bit, uh, but she wanted to pass along uh, some of those, some of her favorite books to you guys. Also, Rubik's Cube update. Austin Christensen is on my heels. He sent me a photo of a 47-second Rubik's Cube solve, which is two seconds off of my standing personal record of 45 seconds. He's gunning for me. I'm scared. He's getting better every week. He's the truth. And uh, I just decided right now that if you send me uh, a video on Instagram of you solving a Rubik's Cube in faster than 45 seconds, then... uh, We'll send you some SOS swag. How about that? A t-shirt or a mug or something. Just no deep fakes, please. All right, you guys want to get into it? Let's dig in. Here's my chat with Dr. Jennifer Ward. We're doing the pop cast. You look like a million bucks. Thank you. Yeah. That's what I needed to hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here because we've been working together a little bit. We have been. And I am uh, peripherally... Uh, engaged in the message of what you're doing now a little bit, but I think it's so cool. Can you like, I don't know, explain the picture a little bit to me, what you got going on? Yeah. So I'm in the second year, I'm rounding the third year of my current position. And I think I'm still trying to figure out what I do and the like short of it. Um, I work for UT extension, which is not something that everyone just intuitively knows about. I mean, University of Tennessee, pretty easy to understand, professors, students, things like that. Um, But Extension is the part of the University of Tennessee that goes out into the community. Mm. And I have a PhD. I teach a college class um, as an adjunct. But what I do full-time is um, what's called a specialist in Extension. And so I direct two nutrition programs it's federal funds that run through UT. It's about $6 million in funds, and we do nutrition education programming for low-income families. 
Um, and it's through the extension system. So that operates through 95 county offices where we have agents and program assistants who really do that on the ground work. So I'm up at what's called the state level, managing the resources and leading the people at the state team uh, to carry out that work. At the community level. Yeah. In, uh, all 90, in all 95 counties. Correct. In the state of Tennessee. Yes. And it's all low income kind of stuff, SNAP benefits, food stamps, kind of the, that crowd. Yeah, so the funding comes as part of the Farm Bill. So it's um, uh, Department of Agriculture? Yeah, so it's USDA at the top. And then I have two funding streams, one through NIFA or FNS. And so these two funding streams specifically target low-income families. Um, it's funded, at least SNAP-Ed is funded through the Farm Bill. So, you know, people understand SNAP as food stamps. And so people get those. Families get food stamps to help them make ends meet to, right. to supplement their food budget. And part of that funding uh, goes through, at least in Tennessee, through the land grant to provide education. So nutrition education for families. Now, people only have to be eligible for SNAP for our programs. They don't have to actually be on food stamps. Mm. So we operate differently. We're not you know, run through DHS. We don't go through an income form or anything like that. Um, we find people in schools in senior centers, in, um, you know, in different community agencies. There's a lot of um, recovery places, maybe some halfway houses, things like that, where we find people who are eligible. And then we provide them with really, really great, high-quality nutrition research and um, curricula from the university. What kind of education are you trying to impart on these folks? Yeah, so I think that that question is really great because it speaks to a tension between like eating and then the most healthy way, and that might be different than the way you and I think about it, and then eating, eating in a way that um, and managing your food budget in a way that feeds your family well, and so um, it's not about like all organic or, you know, free range, things like that. Um, it's not even about making every choice the healthiest choice, you know. It's like um, you need whole grains. And this is how you read a, a label to know that whole grains are actually a part of this bread. It's not just like the honey wheat or something. Like yeah. there's actual whole grains. or And that's something I learned. I mean, I have a PhD and I did not know that. About like I didn't I don't remember you and I went to high school together I don't remember taking a nutrition class I don't either like we didn't they didn't tell me that yeah so the, so <laughs> there's this this baseline of something that we do every single day yeah that we don't really know everything yeah. about and so you guys are filling in the gaps a little bit yeah um, and it just happens to be with low income but it it could be with anybody. Yeah. <laughs> if, if a, a doctor, if somebody with a doctorate is learning these things, yeah. then that means that there's a huge need out there that people haven't learned. Absolutely. And we have a mechanism for that. So we're in the Family Consumer Sciences Department. There are FCS agents and they're doing nutrition programming for anyone in the community. Our grant just specifically uh, targets low-income families because they tend to have a harder time, you know, stretching their food dollars. So a lot of it is also about food safety. Um like, like, don't don't wash your chicken in the sink. Don't wash your chicken. Yeah. Don't Why do is that, that bad? Um. So cross contamination. Yeah. So when the water hits it, 
Yeah. It's going to, you know, splatter, splatter. and yeah. not everything that splatters will be just water. It will be the thing off of the chicken yeah. <laughs> and whatever. And that might be nothing, yeah. but it also could be, you know, some food poisoning, right. like, a, like a little tummy ache. So, yeah. And you don't want that. <laughs> no. So you, you don't have to wash your chicken, but a lot of people do that. And that's not, that's not a low income thing. That's an um, everybody thing. It's an everybody thing. I told my therapist that she's like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not supposed to wash. My grandma told me to wash my chicken. I was like, no, you don't have to do that. I worked at a restaurant growing up and we washed every single chicken that we took <laughs> out of the, yeah, and no idea. So yeah, we have some professors, some faculty that would um, would take issue with that. You don't wash the chicken. You don't have to do that. You're cooking it. You're going to cook away the yucky stuff. So Right. There's more of a danger in splattering it all over your knife. That yeah. You're, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, is it working? Like what kind of, what kind of results do you see from your work? So we have a whole evaluation team, which is great. So we have, we have, uh, luckily we're well-funded. I came from a really underfunded place. I was 10 years in refugee resettlement. And the idea was it was a, you know, private public partnership and they purposely underfunded you. And it was really tough. You had to just beg for stuff. But here we have, we have some capacity and we have an evaluation team and we do pre and post tests. We measure um, if people are eating more fruits and vegetables, if they are, um, you know, understanding like the food safety things that we talk about. We also measure if they're saving money. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of tips about how to shop in season, you know, fresh, canned, frozen, all equally nutritious. So buy the thing that makes the most sense economically, plan ahead. I don't know about you, but I usually end up with like five of the same loaf of bread because I forgot that I just bought it the week before. Mm. And so I've got it in the freezer, but, um, you know, we end up buying doubles when we don't plan. And so it's little tips like that. And, you know, they might save 30 or 40 bucks a month, but when your food budget's about 250, that's a big deal for a whole household, for a whole household. Yeah. And we have families that say, you know, my kids weren't eating every meal. We weren't eating every meal the last week of the month. But now, after these classes, we figured it out. We can stretch it out, and my kids aren't hungry anymore. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. So what are some – like, I know you've been doing it a short while. You said two or three years. Yeah. Yeah. What's, like, the biggest biggest success you've felt or, like, the most gratifying part of what you've done so far? Has there been a story of a family or something like that that's really just – like man i'm i'm really doing good yeah i think it's so hard because i have this like you know belief in the impact of what i do you know i think it's this like crazy idea this one one person can do can do something good and i live my life that way but i really believe that like a lot of people working together can mm. make a big impact and so we talk about you know in trainings we'll say like what was the success you had in the county like what was one person that was changed and people will talk and you know we had a guy say i went through your classes and i put in to practice what you said and we're not saying anything wild like restrict you know all these types of foods or any kind of fad diet anything like that we're just saying basically the dietary guidelines we use what what the federal government says um in those and he said i lost 40 pounds. My A1C levels are normal. I think you saved my life. Really? And we got that letter and it was like, oh, wow. Because I came in, honestly, as a skeptic of nutrition education. Really? 
Like you can tell people all day long that fruits and vegetables are good for them, but if it's easier to get the pop tart or if it's more yummy and it is, you know, then they're going to do that. Like what is education going to do? And I come from a systems perspective. That's what the research I do. Um, I see all these barriers to eating well. I know an apple's good for me. I can't find it at this corner store. Mm. Like it doesn't matter. So I, I see all those barriers. So I came in as a skeptic, but it's true. I mean, sometimes people just need a few tips, a little bit of encouragement. Um, but we do know that education isn't enough. And so we do tackle those kind of systems level things and policy level things. And we try to look at, we're doing this thing called Shop Smart Tennessee in corner stores. And we're working with store owners to make more fresh produce available or low fat dairy more water. I walked into a store one time in West Tennessee and I thought, I'm going to try to get lunch. And I couldn't find anything that met like the healthy, you know, that met the, the, what the federal government that you work from yeah, <laughs> that, like, I, met I those guidelines. Yeah. It was, uh, and it's know. probably the only store within miles and miles when exactly. you're in a rural area. Exactly. It was the only store and it, there was a lot of high sugar drinks there was a lot of chip type products, you know, the spicy ones and the good stuff, the good stuff the stuff that people are going to buy because it's yummy. Yeah. Even in the water case, it was all soda. Yeah. And I was like, I can't find water. I found one low fat cottage cheese, which isn't enough lunch. And it didn't taste good. I bought it and then it was yucky and it just didn't, <laughs> it was not yummy. So I was it just is, hungry. It is- <laughs> It had been there forever. It had been there a while. The the frozen vegetable section, empty. And I was like, I just don't believe this got sold out. You know, I just. Has has it, so has it made changes in you? Like, has the education that you have gained from your vocation, from your job, has it it helped you nutritionally? Yeah, for sure. I think so. I think it's helped me in thinking about parenting Hmm. and getting kids to eat healthy food um and my my degrees in child and family studies and so I look at things from like a development or family systems perspective and kids really do well when they get to try something when they get to participate and so we have community gardens and things like that we have a curriculum with that promotes a garden and a school and so when kids plant things they're way more likely when they watch it grow they're way more likely to try it Mm. and they're also trying things in our classes that they wouldn't necessarily try at home, not because their parents don't think it's a good idea, but because it takes on average a child 10 times of trying something to decide really if they like it or not. Mm. And if you're throwing away broccoli 10 times, that's a lot of money right. for someone on a limited food budget. Right. So we try to meet that need too. So you so you try to engineer other ways to yeah. make it to where you don't have to throw it away 10 times. Exactly. So you engage them in the process of, of growing it. Yeah. You educate them about what it is to where they're more willing to uptake. Yeah. Yeah. And then we do like maybe a simple recipe. We send it home and they're like, hey, mom, I actually really like carrots and apples together with some cinnamon. And then they're eating carrots and apples, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's great. I Working with you, I, I keep hearing this term that I had never heard before. Um, and, and I wonder like what it means, and that's food insecurity. Mm-hmm. So that seems like a big systemic mm-hmm. issue, a, a plight for many, many families across every state probably. But what is that like? What does that term really 
mean where the rubber meets the road? Like, yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. So in kind of the nutrition world, we're going towards nutrition insecurity because a lot of people have access to food, but they might not have access to the most nutritious food. So we say food insecurity and nutrition insecurity, and it kind of means the same thing. But we're really trying to get at, do you have access to food that is helpful? And a lot of people don't. And you and I went to school together. We grew up in about the same area. I've never been more than two minutes away from arugula or, right. you know, a huge produce right. section. Of, so it, it really is about access. It's about access okay. and what kind of food. And so you'll hear the the term food desert and it means like there's not, you know, a grocery store within so many miles. And then you'll hear food swamp, which means there's a ton of food, but it's not great. It's gotcha. fast food. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to call anybody out, but but I but I've heard that like Dollar General, for instance, you find mm -hmm. a lot of Dollar Generals in low income areas, mm -hmm. and that might be like the closest grocery store, air quotes, you know, that anybody has for fifty miles. And I I don't know. I, I mean, I've been in 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 Dollar Generals before, and I'm not really. I, I don't uh, uh, think of them as like a bastion of healthful foods. Um, so it seems like that is kind of. I don't know. That sounds like a food desert to me, right? And and that is uh, a little more ubiquitous than I think we see here in our pop populated, you know, metropolis of, yeah. of of Knoxville. But you don't have to go very far till the closest thing you've got is a Dollar General and and low fat cottage cheese that's been in the fridge for Long you know time. nine months is is the is the best you can do. Um, but like, where are some of those areas that you visited and what are like some of the, some of the ones that you, that, that you've gone into that have surprised you, I guess. Um, and do you feel like you've been able to kind of make a difference in any of those areas? Yeah. I think that I always talk about Benton County as being pretty mind blowing to me. Benton I, County? Benton County. Where is it's it? It's in West Tennessee. It's past Nashville. It's past Dixon County, which is kind of a commuter sleeper city for Nashville. And then there's Benton County. And there's a lot of rural places in Tennessee that have a lot of agriculture. And so they have access, you know, through farms, farmers markets, right. um, things like that. Benton County doesn't really have agriculture. It um, definitely is, I think it used to be one of the like 94th or like bottom yeah, five county. counties. But yeah, yeah. One of those. And I went in and I was talking to our program assistant, which is what the, you know, the term we have for our educators. And I said, well, you know, tell me about your county. And she's like, most people don't have cars, but most people have about a 10 to 20 minute drive if they find a ride to a grocery store wow. or to the Walmart or something that has, you know, everything. And we don't have a doctor. You know, we have a doctor that comes in every one, maybe once a week. We have urgent care with some nurse practitioners. Uh, I said, what do you do if your kid gets sick? She says, I either drive an hour to Jackson. If you can find a car. Or I wait. Yeah. Or I wait. And I was like, so it's so much more than food. Right. And and I'm not, and I, and I really want to make sure not to just have this like deficit lens, like there's a lot of problems, but families in these places are so resilient. Mm. You know, there's, they have, 
there's some language in our in you know my world and they call them low resource families and I take a big issue with that and I don't use it I refuse to use it because these family have a lot of resources they have a lot of mental resources they have a lot of family resources they have a lot of community resources they don't have money they don't have money yeah they just don't have a lot of money right yeah so that's the <laughs> that's the kid gloves way to say they don't have a lot of money yeah is low resource yeah low resource low financial resources right but they have they have a lot of resources to draw on and that's why i feel hopeful about this work mm. because they're bright and they know and they they know how they i mean i've i've been doing this work i'm a, you know nutrition education program director or whatever but i do it because i have you know i have this passion for helping people and for for doing what I do well, which is tends to be in the financial management and tends to be in the strategic planning and things like that to, to execute a program like this, but I can't cook Ben. <laughs> People don't let me do it. Well, they need a fire in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. I'm not. Yeah. Does that help you or not? Like, like does, does that uh, uh, bring you to people's level or does that, I guess, help you better be able to identify? <laughs> yeah. I can empathize. Completely. I can't empathize with living in a hotel. I can't empathize with being transient or I can't empathize with a lot of the things, but I have very few skills in the kitchen. My mom always said, I didn't teach you how to do that because then I know you'd end up doing it. You know, it was uh, this feminist thing uh, that she did. Is your mom a feminist? Yeah. I, I'm awesome. not sure she would say it. My dad would. My yeah. dad would say he's a feminist. Yeah. My mom, you know, my mom is one. Yeah. But I think it was that. She's like, then I knew you'd end up doing it. Yeah. Instead, instead here I am. <laughs> well, so your work has always been to serve, it sounds like. Yeah. And, you know, I I knew you growing up, but we had a we had a gap and, you know, being connected mm -hmm. uh, for, you know, 10 or 15 years. And uh, we're not that old. Are we not? We are. We are. <laughs> I just want to pretend. <laughs> <laughs> but you, uh. I mean, you, you were helping people for, for 10 years before you got your doctorate and, and, and started down this road, right? I mean, you were working, uh, to, to, to serve the underserved Yeah. before this. Yeah. What was I, that? I was the executive director of Bridge Refugee Services, uh, for five years, but I was in resettlement for longer than that. Refugee I, resettlement? Refugee resettlement. Which means some bad shit's going on in somebody's country yeah. and they need to go somewhere else. They can come to the States or other places and you're helping them get acclimated. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's part of the United Nations health commission for refugees program. The United States is a participant in that. And, you know, when I was the director, we resettled annually nationally about 70,000 people a year to the States to the United States. And we were the biggest uh, participant in the resettlement program. And that's exactly what it means. Someone, something happened in your country for reasons um, of, over which you have no control. And you're a member of a certain political, national, ethnic group, social group, and you have to flee. And you cross a border most of the time. You cross a border into a second uh, country. And then the UN decides if you should be repatriated if you should stay in this country or if you should be resettled. And so different populations had different terms uh, in refugee camps. You know, the Burundians that we uh, resettled in Knoxville were- The what? Burundians. From- Burundi. Where's that? It's uh, it's Sub-Saharan Africa. It's close okay. to Tanzania. Okay. Um, Kenya. And 
they they were in Tanzania for 20, 30 years. In I resettled, camps? yeah, in camps. I resettled a family, a mom who had five kids, and she was born in a refugee camp. Her mother was the one that fled. Really? Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a, a generational yeah plight. Yeah, yeah. And then you know Iraqi families that came through had been in you know in Turkey or Jordan or Syria for a couple of years. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of political reasons people get here faster or not. Right. Um, and it's a very small fraction of the total refugee population in the world. But um, Knoxville, who knew? And I didn't know this growing up. Has been resettling refugees since the mid '80s. Why? Uh, so I think at first it was in response to um, the conflict in Vietnam and having Vietnamese refugees coming in and churches co-sponsoring them. And mm. resettlement's been going on longer, but we in Knoxville, some church groups got together. They decided to co-sponsor families, and over time, it became more formalized, federally funded, and then became more of a ecumenical or secular thing and that's you know when i was when when i was doing it from 2008 to 2015 gotcha so like let's take vietnam for instance uh you have you laid out a couple of different options repatriated Mm -hmm. uh what were some of the other ones repatriated means they go back to their country and yeah and that's usually not what happens not what i mean i think eventually sometimes that happens but And then what are the other options for them? They stay in the second country, so they figure okay, so out they a way. Okay, so they stay wherever they were a refugee. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or resettled. Yeah, they apply okay. for resettlement. Okay, mm-hmm. that seems like it's um, seems like it's pretty important right now. With, I mean, we're about to deal with a lot of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. From Afghanistan. Yeah, and the refugee process usually is very slow. It takes a mm. lot of years. You have to do these medical clearances and security clearances and things like that. But that was one of the kind of talking points about resettlement. Like it would be a very difficult and if you if you meant harm to this country, it's like a bad way to go. Like it's What do you mean? It's like it's super bureaucratic. There's oh, a lot of checks and balances. Like Right. If you if you like let's say in, in in today's lens, if you were a bad actor coming over from mm-hmm. Afghanistan, you would have a really really hard time to make it yeah. uh, resettling in our country. Yeah, and you're gonna and have to wait a long time. Yeah, and, yeah. and that that red tape and that bureaucracy is there for that reason, right? Mm-hmm. But but that ultimately a byproduct of that is that it becomes very very difficult for right. somebody who's who needs it who needs it yeah. to get it. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think Knoxville is a really great place for refugees because there was the there's a lot of faith groups in Knoxville that believe in welcome welcoming the stranger. Mm. You know, it is a moral mandate to help people no matter where they come from, and that um, that inspired a lot of help. And then you know, and for me, it was just it was just the right thing to do. Mm. It doesn't matter where you're from if you need help you need help and the united states has a lot to give Mm -hmm. so are you familiar with like the the somali population in in minnesota like there are i remember i was in when i was living in la i became friends but for some reason with a bunch of minnesotans Uh and i went i went uh and visited uh home with with one of them one time and they were talking about the somalis the somalis the somalis and Mm -hmm. i was like well, I, I mean, like I've heard of Somalia, but I, I don't understand 
um, like why you have this huge population mm-hmm. of them here. And it's like every, almost every non-white person I saw in Minnesota was, was a Somali refugee. Yeah. And I did, did some digging and it was, it was the same thing. It was like, uh, you know, there's a civil war. They needed refuge. They needed a place to go. And for some reason, the state of Minnesota was a, 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 a good place for a lot of them to land. Yeah. So I wonder, do, does stuff like that happen to state law? Like, is each does each state? I, I don't mean to use like sanctuary city or whatever, but do, do states have different uh, mandates for who they'll let in and who they won't? And so you see these pockets yeah. of of refugee populations come in in different places and set down roots. Yeah, I don't, some states operate kind of in a different way. Um, and so you do see differences among the states. Like Tennessee pulled out of the refugee resettlement program while I was there. So it just meant our money flowed pretty directly to us. It was federal. Um, but we it didn't go through the state then? Is that what that means? No, yeah. It, didn't, it, it bypassed the state. Okay. Um, and so we – it went through a third party, and it went through Catholic Charities in Tennessee. Okay. But we um, – I, every year I had to write a proposal and say who we could accept in Knoxville. And I would write that proposal based on our linguistic capacity, our housing capacity, mm. our education capacity. So it might have so happened that in Minnesota they had a ton of people that could speak um, Arabic or Amharic or whatever, um, you know, they were speaking right. and then could translate well and they had the health resources available. Mm. And so – like it, we have Somalis in Tennessee. Do we? There's a documentary. I don't know if you've heard of it. Welcome to Shelbyville. Oh, really? Which is Bedford County. So they originally resettled in Nashville. Somalis did. Mm-hmm. And then they moved to where work was, which was in Bedford County in Shelbyville, um, and it caused kind of a ruckus. You know, oh, I bet. there was there was a, a lot of cultural mismatch and conflict uh between the people there and the documentary is is kind of this hopeful thing like they kind of figured it out yeah but um you know the truth is that after that there were some vocal people and there was a representative from that that district that advocated for anti-refugee legislation in tennessee which was pretty devastating um what was the name of the county bedford county what who was that named after Oh yeah. Right? Was it named after was it named after like I don't know, Nathan Bedford Forrest, like yeah, the Klansman? Possibly. I bet it Yikes. was. It probably was. Yeah. I mean, so I, I, I can't imagine yeah. that it was a place that, that Almost... welcomed a, a bunch of a bunch of non white people with open arms. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. That's a big it's a big, big thing. And this has been a huge part of my personal learning. You know, I well, and to the you know, the population point, like we didn't have we had Burmese coming to Knoxville because we had interpreters, but we had Chin Burmese. We didn't have Kareni. So the Kareni Burmese are in Nashville. We didn't have Bhutanese, which was the largest population coming to the U.S., but we didn't have any in Knoxville because I didn't have anybody that could translate so so or interpret. So mm. that was really how that happened. But yeah, this this these racial tensions, the you know country borders, yeah, xenophobia, so. just in, in yeah. I mean, it, especially the more rural you get, mm-hmm. it, that's when it becomes really crazy when you see somebody who doesn't look yeah. like you or act like you. Yeah. I, I listened to this. I think it was This American Life or something, and they they opened these like these chicken processing plants in Alabama somewhere. And this city was like 95% white the entire time. And then the Hispanic population started moving in because this you know, chicken processing plant um, uh, 
employed, you know, almost a thousand people. And you got to watch this like Hispanic culture very painfully meld with, um, you know, rural white America. And it wasn't easy and it was painful from what, from, you know, what I heard. Um, and, and it was, it was a shock for these, for these people who felt like, um, who felt like their God-given right was being encroached on. And so I can only imagine that it's an uphill battle every time you try to resettle a population um, that doesn't look like you. And it's got to be even harder in, in these areas that, I mean, I don't know, these, these areas that are so white. And so in, in a lot of cases, um, I don't know, I don't don't want to say uneducated, but that kind of ends up, um, being part of it, they've not they've not seen. Yeah, they've not been outside of their town or their or their county, and that seems like some of the hardest. Like that would be some of the hardest places to mm-hmm. uh, reset resettle some people. It seems like you would have an easier time in more populated areas where there's more tolerance already um, with with a foothold. Did you find that to be true? Yeah. So we we really only resettled within 100 miles or was it 100 miles? I don't remember what the rules of are here? now. Yeah, the 50 mile radius. But we really stayed in the Knoxville Metro and in, in Hamilton County in Chattanooga. So mm-hmm. I was, had two offices. Um, and I really felt like, you know, refugee resettlement was life-saving work. Like even if it was tough here, and it is tough here. It is tough here to, to be from another country. It is tough to not have your degrees transfer. It is tough to not have access to healthcare. Mm. Um, it's tough to be in this country, but I always felt like at least it was better. I hope it's better. They than living are, in a tent. Then yeah, it's super it, these and the families that made it are super resilient. They have been through so much. We didn't ask their stories, but we would hear them. Uh, but we we had a lot of stuff happen. Um, I had an Iraqi man who's a victim of a hate crime. Mm. And off 17th. Really? Yeah. And, you know, beaten up in an elevator. And I had a middle school, my seventh grader, a seventh grade boy from Iraq. One of my first clients uh, came home upset, obviously. And this was during, you know, the Iraq war. And then after 9-11, of course, two things are separate. They're different, you know. Um, But this with the middle school minds that were there were saying, go back, you know, are you a terrorist? Do you have a bomb? You know, these things. So this seventh grader who was a victim hmm. of Al Qaeda. Right. He, he obviously didn't belong there either, or he wouldn't no. be here. His father was killed for helping US, the U S right. his mother was targeted because she worked for an American company. And then he's got to come to the States where he's labeled as a, a terrorist. Yeah. Cause of where he's from. Yeah. Because he's speaking Arabic. And Mm. I walked through the grocery store with his mom, who had highlights. She did not wear a hijab. She was very, she was an engineer by a trade, you Mm. know, by education. She was Western educated. She spoke English fluently. And people would say, you know, I think this was in North Knoxville, where are you from? And she would say Turkey or something. And I was like, why, you know, why did you say that? And she's like, I'm not telling them I'm from Iraq. Yeah. I'm not telling them that. They shouldn't ask her that. No, it's to begin a, with, it's a way to other. And I yeah. teach that in my diversity class. I mean, those those seemingly innocent questions are a way to other. I had a, a friend of mine, Kent Takano, on the podcast, and mm-hmm. um, he's Japanese-born American, 
But like he deals with it. He speaks, he's, I mean, English is his first language. He grew up yeah. in San Francisco yeah. and he's sitting at a bar somewhere and somebody's like, where are you from? He's like, I'm from, yeah. so I've lived in Where's Knoxville for 25 yeah. years. Like I'm from San Francisco. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's silly. That's a place where some education, some sensitivity training needs yeah. to, needs to happen. Yeah. Too. Just because, you know, I mean, even people around here hear the Ohio and my parents, <laughs> From me, really? <laughs> like, where are you from? I'm from around Cedar Bluff. <laughs> How long have you lived here? My entire life. <laughs> well, where are your parents from? Ohio. Oh, okay. <laughs> you don't sound like, you know, West Knoxville has like more linguistic diversity, and I don't think we sound like, you know, we sound Southern if you go mm-hmm. anywhere else, but um, pretty non- in Knoxville now. Non- yeah, yeah, but fairly nondescript as far as the South goes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you did live in uh, Greenville, South Carolina for a little while, didn't I did, you? I did, yeah. Yeah, I remember that because I lived in Greenville right after you lived there. Did you? Yeah, and uh, <laughs> my next door neighbor was like, hey, man, added you on Facebook. <laughs> we got a mutual friend, Jennifer Ward. <laughs> Who was that? Andrew Mansbach. Oh, yeah. Is mm-hmm. his name. He was my yeah. next door neighbor when I, I got when I was in film school. Yeah. Yeah. His, Would you Go ahead. His brother wrote a funny book, or was it his cousin? Yeah. It's it's a it's children's book, but it's really for adults. Yeah, it's called "Go the Fuck to Sleep." Oh, I have that book. <laughs> His cousin wrote that. Oh, and uh, and uh, you have to fucking eat. Yep, is also another book from so that. Good. Yeah, they are so good. I've yet to read them to my children because I don't want to teach them how to drop the f bomb. But Not I thought yet. it was funny. <laughs> yeah, they'll learn how to use it in oh their own time. <laughs> but uh, I, we did get that as like a, a joke from a yeah. from 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 a friend, and I don't know where they are. They're around here somewhere. They're up yeah. high. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Yeah, up high. What uh, did your did your studies at Furman get you uh, in, or what did you study? You said food, or you said uh, 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 child stuff. What did you say? Well, that's what my PhDs in child oh, okay. and family studies. My master's is in public health, and my bachelor's from Furman is in psychology and women's studies. Hmm. Um, so and, you've kind of gotten to use all of it. Yeah. Did you did you lean towards the women part um, when you were helping resettle families? Yeah, I think I saw things a little bit differently. Um, could see how gender played a really big part in success in mm. uh, resettlement. Women tend to learn English faster because they're a little bit more employable in the U.S. Uh, it's easier to get. It was easier just to get them jobs. I don't wait, wait. know why they they learn English faster because they're incentivized, or they learn English faster because they tend to they're be... smarter. We all know they're smarter. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, <laughs> but they they end up getting employed faster and around English speakers more. Ah. They're dealing with you know school just as not you know not as a matter of biology, but because of, right. of social and cultural context. And so mm. power changes, and so we would see the power dynamics change we would see i mean i was a director um and there were men that wouldn't talk wouldn't speak to me uh directly so who who were these men um they typically would be middle eastern men or they'd be a little Mm. bit angrier when i was telling them you know so so these are families that you're working with yeah and the men wouldn't address you yeah i wouldn't say across the board but there were a couple that were having a hard time that were having a hard time and that's okay it was okay with me yeah it's cultural yeah that's fine i did not have a big thing about it we just work how we need to work and 
you know, help them how, however we could. And mm. it was really pretty limited. Resettlement is underfunded, like I said, and we were you know, begging in, in the community to help bring furniture, get food, you know, pay, take people to appointments. They had a lot of appointments. It's a so. grassroots effort. Yeah, super grassroots. Yeah, that's where I really, I learned, I cut my teeth in the nonprofit world and in management. I mean, I was the one, I have, I have an admin team now. I have like four administrative assistants that are the absolute reason I get anything done. Well, I bet I mean, you appreciate the hell out of that after oh, yeah. coming from bootstrapping in a little bit. Yeah, definitely bootstrapping. Like I was the one kicking the printer to figure out right. how to get it done because everyone else was out in the field. So I'm mm -hmm. like, how do I put ink in the printer? Again, another skill, much like cooking, <laughs> not in my big strengths. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, we can... Uh, at, at Pop Fizz, we can uh, operate hundred thousand dollar cameras with ease. You know, put five of them out there if you want to. You know, work the most uh, uh, technologically advanced uh, uh, yeah. cameras and things like that. We still can't get the printer to work. No, so so don't feel bad about it. Printers just don't work. No, they don't. I had I went and had I just I just lived with a broken printer for the last month, and yeah. then finally I went and begged one of the admins. And I was like. Just fix it. Do you know? Do you know how to do the ink or where it is or, you know? What's it? What's it like to come from, uh, from the bootstrap world and then finally have resources? I bet there's a sense of gratitude, no doubt, that helps you elevate your work and appreciate it more than somebody who didn't. For sure. Come from that. Yeah, I think you know. I think it's good to be a generalist. I think it's good to know how to cook a printer. I think it's good to like have had those experiences. I think it's good that I worked in food service and retail, you know, and things yeah. like that. But I knew, like, I like frontline casework wasn't was not my strength, mm. and so I have no. There's no value difference for me in the different types of work. I'm just where I'm good. Like, I'm just better at writing. I'm just better at like thinking bigger and strategically. Um, and then like talking to Denise as my the administrative coordinator and she's the one closest to me. And then she's like, I'm going to make this make sense in terms of like how to accomplish it or mm -hmm. something, you know, like when I actually have the freedom instead of being in the mud, doing yeah. all the work that you can actually think bigger picture. Yeah. And strategize. Yeah. And str like and actually think about it in ways that move us forward. Because when I was at Bridge, and I and I'm so grateful for that experience and I'll never forget that or forget refugees or anything like that. In fact, one of my biggest initiatives right now with SnapEd is to to reach the refugee and immigrant audience. Because we're not doing that. We're not doing that well. But I have the room, instead of spending fifty percent of my time managing my calendar. I have someone who's very detail oriented and focused and can do that. And then, then I can actually move us forward and, and create something that like communicates a vision to the team and then gets us, you know, distributes information or I can read something that, you know, changes the course or adapt a new curriculum or something like that instead of, you know, doing my appointments because I get confused <laughs> on Outlook. I just don't know how to push the buttons. I can tell you, and it's the same with stats. I love statistics. I love knowing why you would use a log regression or what a chi-square is. I can't push the buttons, Ben. Really? I can't figure it out. This is like, I 
like I'm like oh, I've got to go again look on Google <laughs> and it tells me the steps on how to push the button well, if you don't do stuff all the time you don't ever learn how to do it you have to do stuff with repetition to commit it to memory yeah so I like have to put my away message on my outlook yeah that's a struggle for me I have to search every time how to do it oh yeah why it's, yeah because you do it once a year that's it yeah you know? I just do it yeah so anyways I I think that Yes, having an administrative staff that is skilled with the details and logistics mm. and like maneuvering people and, you know, I mean, it's super skilled work. It's just not my skill. And it helps synergize and it helps you guys be able to become, um, to use a overly cliche term, greater than some of your parts. Yeah. Right. Make, just get a little bit bigger than, than yeah. you were. And, th- and that's why, you know, I, I think it's great for, for people to have to, you know, air quotes, pay your dues. Yeah. Um, because it makes you appreciate it when you, when you do have resources to do stuff, but sometimes you lose a lot of efficiency with, with yeah. Jennifer Ward having to Google how to put an away message out, yeah. you know, every, you know, couple weeks cause she's going out on the road or whatever. Yeah. So I, I, it's gotta be, it's gotta be nice. And I know that I, I mean, just from, from what I've seen in the work that, that we have done together, like your, your strategy and your big picture stuff is, is on point and it's it kind of it stinks for me because I love working with you so much but it, it's like we come up with these ideas together we work on these concepts uh-huh. and and then uh you know and then we're, we're out there carrying them out together and uh and I realize that you're you know you've got I don't want to say bigger fish to fry but you've got so many other things going on that are making just as big of a difference as the things that we're working on together but your people that are are working with you are super capable and almost extensions of you and always feel really taken care of. And like, we're, we're really doing good work. We're really doing meaningful work too. Um, but I always know that it's your, you know, your kind of strategy too. And that, that, you know, that to me brings it, brings it home a little bit in that, uh, you know, me and Jennifer are still working together here. So, you know, we are working with somebody else, but we should talk about a little bit of the stuff that we've done together because that's kind of what, like, that's how we kind of reconnected is, is working on stuff for, for UDI extension. And, uh, one of the, one of the cool ones, and I've talked about it, I think I've talked about it on the podcast before, but the thing that we did with Sam producer, Sam Holla, uh, <laughs> it was the, uh, uh, the DJ Willie well. Thing. Oh yeah. What was, what was that? Uh, so what was the whole concept that we were working on? Uh, that we, we were, who were we trying to touch with that and what were we trying to do? Yeah. So a big part of what we do is going places where people are to deliver education or resources or interventions. And so this is like your educators that you have as part of extension that yeah. are traveling around the state of Tennessee. They're usually within their county. Within their county. Yeah. Okay. So these educators are going out to schools? Schools. Yeah. Yeah. So they're going places. COVID happened. Mm. They couldn't go anymore. They couldn't. And and our traditional methods of delivery, which is what we say, is is being in person. And we couldn't be in person anymore. So they were the guests in your fourth grade class that would come in and yeah. teach you how to yeah. do something. Yeah. Yeah. Those yeah. things we looked forward to when we were elementary. Yeah, that fun soon. lady. And that yeah. the teacher also looked forward to because she got to sit down yeah. and get away from the goldfish crumbs or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's who we are. And so it was like, oh, wow, we have to figure out how to get online, how to get on Zoom, how to give, even if we can't do what we normally do, which is eight lessons or six lessons on this, let's get, let's 
keep them aware of of who we are, keep the relationship alive, give the kids something to watch and learn from safely, you know, because teachers were teaching online mm. and didn't have necessarily the content or the, there's a ton of content out there, but this is, you know, if it's coming from UT, it's research and evidence-based. Mm. So we wanted, you know, our program assistants came to us and this is a value of mine, like listen to the people in the field. Because I can have great ideas all day long, but it might not make any kind of sense actually in implementation. So right. they came to us and said, we need videos to go with our stuff. Like we can't just send in worksheets or we can't just like some of some of them won't even let us zoom. So we need something to send them. Yeah. So you have these these educators who are no longer able to go into the classroom because of the pandemic. But yeah. the work they're doing is still important. It yeah. needs to get out there. They've got to figure out a new way to do it. Yeah. It's even more important. COVID you know, is, was hitting communities of color harder, mm. you know, where we know that people or in communities of color or trans youth or women and children are more likely to be affected by food insecurity. They're also more likely to be affected by COVID and diet was related. So it was even, it felt like even more important. Like we, right. now we know. She were dealing with disproportionately impacted communities. Yes. And, and families are, we're losing jobs. You know, we mm. still have these crises going on. So they even, even have a smaller food budget. More people are going to be going on food stamps. Like we need, we can't go away, you know. We Just because we can't be in the classroom doesn't mean we can disappear for this time. Right. Yeah. So yeah, we were like, let's make some videos. And so we can send them to teachers. And so we can still have a presence and give this great information in a really fun, high quality way. Yeah, that's it's so hard, though, because we're adults trying to get into the minds of, yeah. of you know, in some cases, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, yeah. 10-year-olds. But that was so much fun for us because we got to come up with, um, you know, with these, with these ideas that are outside of the box. Because I think we all remember back to the cringy stuff that we had to sit through oh, yeah. that was just either tone deaf or off the mark or just, yeah. you know, we laughed at when we left or whatever. But I think we got to, I think we got to make some, some pretty cool stuff. The one that, the one that Sam wrote the music for was the, was the wash your hands thing. Yeah. And that was kind of, um, it was teaching kids how old, like third, fourth, fifth, third, yeah. like in that world, like yeah, that was where we, in the middle elementary. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's called uh, Wash and Sanitize by mm -hmm. uh, DJ Willy Wow, and it's on YouTube and yeah. other places. But um, the the way that all the way that all came down is you guys came to us with a problem, and it was yeah you know, we can't get in the classroom. We have a limited amount of time to FaceTime with these kids. Mm -hmm. It's digital. We have to give them something that's going to be impactful in a short amount of time. And uh, one of one of our guys uh, at Pop Fizz, Brent Collier, was like, "Hey, man, you know Sam Thomas works with this DJ down in Atlanta who throws these huge parties for the the age group that you're talking about, oh, yes. <laughs> DJ Willie Wow." And uh, man, Sam, uh, uh, we talked to Sam. He was like, "Man, yes, we can we can do this. Uh, uh, let me let me write some music." So Sam. Sam comes up with this beat that's like Pink Floyd's money, you know, the all the all oh, yeah. the uh, all the uh, cash register noises yeah. and all that. He did that with a sink and and a paper towel and a toilet flushing and all that. It made like this made this beat and sent it to DJ Willie Wow down in Atlanta, and he wrote the one two three four five wash your hands and sanitize. Mm -hmm. And man, when we saw like when we saw the kids singing it and doing the dance, the the right age range, the 
fourth, fifth, and sixth graders doing it, we were like, man, this is going to hit. This is going to be good. Yeah. And, and I think it did. I, I, I hope it did because it was one of the, it was one of those moments where I felt like we were, we were doing good for a good cause, which is you guys in the extension program. But we were also, you let us play. You let mm -hmm. us get out there and do something super fun and outside the box. That's not a talking head teacher talking to a bunch of students. I think it hit. I think it, you know, it did well. I don't know. What do you think? I thought, yeah, I mean, I can still sing it. I it's won't. still stuck in Another your head. Another one of those skills. <laughs> but Kick, kicking, printers, I, cooking, yeah, singing. <laughs> singing. All in the don't. Don't let Jen do that list. Um, but I, yeah, it was so good. It was, I thought it was super catchy. It wasn't like, you know, PhDs in their office, like trying to animate something or, you know, that's right. one of the capacity things. Like we yes. had the capacity to go to you who can do this well and look good and be modern and you know of of the times and then do something for us that's educational too and my kids loved it yeah mine did too they still sing it we yeah. turn it on sometimes and it was that 20 seconds right like the it, it yeah. the oh yeah we so one of the th and that's that's just another cool thing that that you're talking about with you know letting not having the, the the educator figure out how to animate something to be a video, um, you you let us play and let us have the creative, but we don't know the messaging that well. We need your help there, and so you guys had the had the point that like kids need to wash their hands for twenty seconds when they're in the bathroom before they eat, whatever it is, and so we made the hook exactly twenty seconds yeah. so they could sing it while they were washing their hands. Yeah, and it was just a cool. A cool example of uh, how collaboration uh, creates creates synergy that 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 can make a difference. Yeah. Too, and we couldn't have done that by ourselves, and you guys couldn't have done it by yourselves. So it was like it's it's perfect. Yeah, it's, it's exactly it was, what you, that's the way you draw it up. It was perfect, and Ben, I think it was really pers you know personally perfect too. It was kind of like a full circle moment. I don't know if you yeah. remember this moment in high school when we had. Um, some surplus Ajax or whatever the dishwasher. Oh was. yeah, I forgot. I don't about know that. If, if you're into like admitting crimes on oh, your podcast. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh <laughs> yeah. Statute of limitations on the Gettys View Fountain. <laughs> yes. yeah. So it was like we're making bubbles for this good thing. Oh, that's maybe funny. Maybe when we were 17, we were making. Yeah, yeah, that was that was how we. Uh, uh, that, that's how me and some of my friends like to uh, raise hell as teenagers. That's pretty. That's a that's a pretty like I don't know. I think it's a harmless crime to go put. For you sure. know, uh, uh, six gallons of dish soap in the Gettys View Fountain and watch it overflow Westland. Uh, <laughs> drive in the middle of the night, just sit back and I would call that a victimless crime. I would call it a victimless unless crime. Unless someone, some poor soul had to clean out something. Then I'm sure I they feel, did. Yeah, I feel bad I'm about that. I'm sorry for that. Um, no, that is funny though. I didn't think about that. Yeah, that is yeah, that is full circle. It was full circle for us. Yeah. I don't know if I told anyone on the team that, but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> we stole a goat one time too. Oh, I was not part of that. No, you weren't part of that. I need were to you be part? On record. Were you part of the? Uh, were you part of the of the soap? I was part of the soap. I was in you the were? car. I don't okay. think I actually so poured I the too, soap. Way too rule following, but I was like totally cheering you on. And right, that was I couldn't remember if you were if you were there dumping it in or not. I was there. Yeah, we did. We 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 took a goat one one time from somebody's property, and we took it to. Um, to the high school and uh -huh. we, we, uh, we took pictures with him. Um, and like you do. Yeah. Like you do. We were very gentle and kind with this goat. Yeah. Peter to come after us. The goat was 
He was he was great. Uh, we were juniors in high school. We named the goat Junior. We spent about four hours with him. Took him to the high school. Took photographs with him. Took him home. Put him back in the fence again off Westland Avenue, Westland Drive. Yeah. Nobody was any the wiser. Didn't hear anything uh, about <laughs> it. But somebody still got the pictures. Again, a victimless crime. The yeah. goat was unharmed. The goat probably had a great time. If the goat could could tell the story. I think he. I think he probably had the night of his life. <laughs> the night of his life. <laughs> the night of his life, and that was before, thank goodness, social media, so we couldn't get in trouble for being, you know, having yeah. underdeveloped brains and just posting immediately about our crimes online. Can you believe it? Yeah. Are you worried about kids? Like it, when you see kids growing up now, are you yeah. are you worried about the implications of them having? Um, these uh, devices in their pockets that will yeah. invariably incriminate them maybe for the rest of their lives for if they sure. do something stupid. For sure. Do you educate your kids in that Yeah, way? I think that a big part of it is being, you know, we're like geriatric millennials, I guess, technically. Yeah, or we're whatever, pretty old whatever. for millennials. Yeah, so we're like, we count. We had computers. I remember a computer in kindergarten, but we're not natives really to like yeah, the digital, digital natives. We're, what is it, immigrants? Digital yeah, immigrants? digital immigrants. Yeah. So we, we're learning and, you know, I think it's, it's a matter of teaching your kids how to deal with having a ton of information. I mean, you remember encyclopedias? Yeah, you know, we had to go to a book back in my day. Yeah. I had to go look it up in a book. I didn't yep. just. So I'm always talking to my kids like, "said I know this is true because I saw it online." Like, but how do you know? Because anyone can put anything online. Mm-hmm. So how do you know? And you have to learn to discern. And I mean, yeah, this I is a skill. Discernment is going to be the biggest, the biggest uh, superpower that people have. Yeah. In and the I- next. Ever. Oh, yeah. With information being so free-flowing. And it's tough for people our age and older to discern. I mean, probably our kids are better at it. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. we have people that are super vulnerable, and I think the pandemic is worse because of it. You know, people don't know how to get good information, how how to read, you know, some pretty heady stuff sometimes. Um, But, you know, I think a tool is, you know, my seven-year-old loves TikTok. He loves making TikToks. You know, me... And himself or his dad likes it every time. You know, he's got two likes. A few of them have a few more likes or hearts or whatever. But he just made a TikTok. He's getting more advanced. And he made one where it looked like he was jumping up or down. It was a special effect. So my plan is to use that. Sometimes when he sees a video that looks real, I'm going to say, do you remember how you made your video look like you were doing something you weren't? Mm -hmm. You know, that might be that. I don't know, but yeah. it might be that. Sure. And I've always, you know, you always hear like believe half of what you see and none of what you hear or mm-hmm. whatever it is. But that's becoming even more with deep fake stuff. Have yeah. you seen some of that face swap technology? Oh, no. Oh, man. Oh. Go look at so, Google Tom Cruise deep fake sometime and just okay. look at the things that you see Tom Cruise saying. And then you're and then you it's it's not him. Yeah, it's it's, you know, facial technology, uh, uh, motion tracking, all that stuff that is so like AI is so good at at replicating information now and and doing the math for you that you that you no longer have to, you know, it, it's not Star Wars out here where you've got to do all that stuff. It's automated almost now. Yeah. A lot of the stuff. D- did you uh, watch the Mandalorian? No. Did you watch that? There's a scene. I mean, there's a scene at the end of one of the seasons of The Mandalorian where, uh, 
where Luke Skywalker comes back and it looks just like him from the, and it's like, it's the same deep fake uh, face, face swap technology that, that people are using like crazy. And that's going to be so weaponized, so weaponized. I mean, I saw something on Ellen where she did, it was during the Obama administration and it was, it was, it wasn't great, but like he gave, it was when uh, Obama was giving, I think his last state of the union address. And after he gives it, you see him throw all his papers up in the air and like make it rain with his, with his paper. And if you go back, like it's a fake setup with his face, like barely holding on to what is moving around and it looks fake. But like, I bought it the first time I saw it and went and told somebody that I saw it, you know? Yeah. And it's like stuff like that is, is making discernment so much harder because you have to know the tricks. You have to know how these people work that are trying to trick you, why they're trying to trick you. And like you said, the people older than us are probably the most susceptible, our parents' generation and all that. Yeah. They haven't seen, you know, they, you know, we grew up and, and, and watched it get developed. And so we might have some inkling that these things are going on. But yeah, it can be really surprising. And, and I think, you know, a lot of things just look outlandish, you know, you might, but if you want to believe it's true, mm-hmm. it's going to be a lot harder. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, yeah. If you've already got some implicit mm-hmm. bias, mm-hmm. then you're going to, you're going to believe it a lot more than a skeptic will. Yeah. Especially if it, if it hammers home what your point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's really hard to be open to things that disprove something that you already believe is true. And yeah, I see, I, yeah, I see that a lot. That's why I love my psychology degree. You know, I, I use it in, in management and I use it in understanding and making asks, you know, for, for a while I was fighting for higher minimum wage for our um, people at the Mm -hmm. county level. And we, we were doing all these strategic negotiations and I'm moving a little bit, but I they said, well, let's tell, let's tell the directors, you know, we can do a 3%, a 5%, an 8%. Well, maybe we'll just give them the 3% and 5%. I said, no, no, no. We want the 5%. So we're going to give them the 8 mm. and say we want the 8 and they're going to go down to 5 and we're going to be happy. You yeah. know, and I, this is, that's called the, you know, door in the face effect. Like it's an actual psychological phenomena. But I learned that in undergrad at Furman. Right. And so like these cognitive biases, like cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias and stuff like that, that's. That's totally at play here. Just want people to, yeah, and my kids to learn, like, just think about it a little bit more, like, challenge yourself. Like, could could this not be right? And then, yeah, go from there. I, I, I wonder, you know, I, I worry about it because your kids are a little older than mine. Your kids are already on TikTok and, mm-hmm. and doing all that. You know, I wonder how much different I'm, I'm scared to death, honestly, if I'm if I'm going to be honest that like I'm 30 years older than my kids. Like I'm I'm way disconnected with with where they're going to be, the way that they're uptaking information, the way that they're seeing it, um, their their perspective. Um, and it's 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 daunting. Yeah. And I don't really know that I, I mean, not to be the old guy, but like. I already feel that way. Yeah. My kids are not where your kids are yet or, yeah. you know, in that, in the digital space, but it's, it's scary. It's daunting. And you, you can only think that, um, it could be dangerous Yeah, if not yeah. dealt with. It's super scary. I think that 
they're always going to figure something out. You know, they're going to figure out something around us. Like there's going to be an app that looks like a clock and it's really something else. And then, so it's not, you know, there's research about this and this isn't my area of expertise, but what I've, I've read is that, you know, it's not just about monitoring what they do, which we do. We mm. monitor, mm-hmm. we set internet time limits. We, you know, have the parental controls and all that stuff, but it's having them figure out what, is inappropriate. What do you click off of? What do you, what has, you know, like, how do you navigate this world? Because I'm not always going to be there. And that's, you know, kind of basic psychology too. Like spanking, it's about 40 years of research. That's not, doesn't work. Really? It, it works in the very short term. They might stop what they're doing, but they don't necessarily know why. Mm. Um, they learn more about avoiding the spanker you know, they learn about how to, how to get around it and things like that. But if you, you know, so I don't know, I guess there's, there's just always a way, there's always a way around. So you have to learn how, like how to deal with this. Yeah. Kids are, kids are crafty. Yeah. Right. Their, their brains are crafty. They're going to figure out how to get around the alarm system so they can sneak out of the house when they're 12 years old or, you know, or whatever. Like they're, and I'm wondering about that too. How are they going to get around? How are they going to figure out a way to hack the, you know, the the internet password when I change it so they can't get online right, because yeah. they're grounded or whatever? Yeah, they can do that. And they're, you know, we joke about millennials like converting PDFs for our, for our older, you know, colleagues. But what are our kids going to be helping us with? Like, what is even going to be the thing? I've like- I've thought I've thought about this a lot, and it's why I try to stay on top of cryptocurrency. Yeah. NFTs like that. Oh, I just learned about that two days ago. I really? mean, I still don't get it, but yeah, I don't either. I mean, I, I, I do, I understand it more than most people, I think, but it's, there's a lot <laughs> to it. And I like, it's painful to understand that kind of stuff, to make your, to contort your brain in ways where it can understand these things that have no basis in yeah. your, in, in your brain of, of being real things. And, and, uh, it's, it, it's like, it's almost, uh, um, it's a grudge, like I, I, I begrudgingly keep up with this kind of stuff, not because I'm interested in it, but because I know my kids are going to know more about it than I am in no time. So I better keep, you know, keep up. Yeah. I remember my uncle like, years ago, probably over a decade, asked me, he's like, so I have a picture on my computer. And then it's like, you know, 3.2, whatever, megabytes or something. And then I reduce it to 1.7 like, where do the other megabytes go? I was like, that's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a, but it's like, it's not a thing, but it was a thing. Yeah. But why, you know, what? Yeah. I don't, yeah. I had no answer. Yeah. That's and a, I'm, that's a, well, so he was sending it probably. Probably sending it to somebody. But like, what is space when it's digital? Like, what is, I don't know. Yeah. What it is. Bits and bytes, man. Bits and bytes. What is that? Yeah. I can't do my away signature. <laughs> I'm not going to understand that. Well, you're going to have to get on it because our kids are going to outrun us in no time. Yeah. And we're going to be the old people sitting at home. Yeah. You know, being totally disconnected. Yeah. If we're not careful. Yeah. We got to be careful. It's yeah. the same principle. Like, you know, instead of from the outside in telling them, like, get off that thing, it's not safe. Like, do you feel safe? Are you sturdy? Do you think falling from there would feel good? Right. Same deal. Think about it yeah. yourself and then make a choice. Yeah. And if you make the wrong one, I'm probably going to correct you right now because I don't feel like going to the ER tonight. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Yeah. 
But, you know, in this, you send the wrong picture to somebody as a high school student, it can mm-hmm. ruin your life. Yeah, the laws haven't caught up. Mm-mm. It's child child pornography. Yeah. Go go send around a you know mm-hmm. picture that some that your girlfriend sent you. Go show it to other people and you've yep. just trafficked yep. child pornography. Yep. Yeah. And I'm I don't know that the laws should I mean like that's you know, kids shouldn't I don't know. Kids shouldn't be the stakes should be lower for kids, but we have to we have to educate them and we have to let them know yeah. that things I don't know. These things have real consequences, but we barely know what they are ourselves mm-hmm. because we had we didn't have to deal with them right till now till yeah. we didn't have to deal with them till we knew better right there's no getty zoo ajax picture Mm-mm. on facebook thank goodness no. i want to know who has the pictures maybe juniors floating around Jun- probably, juniors we probably don't take it. pictures of the, <laughs> of the soapy night <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have that technology that yet. was like the one bad thing i did and it was with i know then i'm so glad you remember it i'm so <laughs> glad i could I uh, uh be a monument of your rebellion yeah yeah, I was so sad I couldn't be at the DJ Willy Wow set. I came by later and saw the suds, and I was like, "Oh!" I was literally been. cleaning up all the soap when you came back. Yeah, I was, I was, I was taking down the the foam machine. Maybe that was payback for whoever had to clean the it's exactly it was, fancy fountain. It was, it was penance. It was penance. I'm glad. Thank you for doing that <laughs> for the both of us. Of we'll course. count it for the both of us. Yes. Well, what else we got? I'm, we miss anything? We've been we've been we've been going on an hour. We miss anything? Leave anything out? Do you want to talk about? I don't know. I don't know. I talked about kids and the refugee stuff, and I mean, maybe, I mean, teaching is a big part. Like, so I've read seventy six books this year. How do you do that? How do you find time? Do you I, listen to them or do you read them? Read them. I do both. Okay. I'm. I really love learning i love being in alt alt ac so alternative academia so i'm not like a traditional professor right you said that surprised me when you said that you were an adjunct at mm-hmm. at ut because i would have figured you would have just been a faculty member at the university but i guess the extension is different yeah extension's different we do have faculty they don't have teaching and research appointments in our department gotcha and so it's all programmatic it's all you know um Pulling in research essentially that other people do and condensing it and making it usable for the public. That's what our faculty does. And we have two nutrition faculty that help us with our content. Um, But I'm an adjunct with child and family studies and I teach diversity of children and families. So I talk about how race, class and gender and other axes of diversity like ability intersect uh, to create different experiences and outcomes for families. And it's a really, really important part of what I do. And so those 76 books I read, a lot of them have to do with race or class or gender and gender and power and food and, you know, things like that. Who are your students? So in child and family studies, there's a track for early childhood educators. So a lot of them are going to be pre-K through three licensure teachers. um, And they're so they're considered pre-service. They're not teachers yet. And then we have a lot of students that take it as an elective. So we have a lot of speech pathology, have a lot of um, I'm trying to think like nursing students, things like Mm. that. And so my goal really from my perspective is. It's like I love applying research. I love applying the the knowledge that the academy creates. So in my class, I have them think intentionally about how in every week they're writing about how they're going to apply this in their life. 
And that's why I would always have nurses or stu- different student groups at Bridge when, in refugee resettlement. So I was like, how are you going to deal with this family when they come to your office? One of my first experiences as a case manager at Bridge was calling a doctor's office and saying, I'm going to need an interpreter. And the person on the other line or on the other you know, end of the line, and this was a landline, <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of technology, said, oh, what, do they speak Mexican? And oh I just gosh. was like stunned we, we we have a major disconnect here first of all yeah that's not a language yeah. <laughs> second of all no there's a lot of other people in the world and there's a lot of other people in knoxville and this burundian family actually needs a kurundi interpreter and if you don't have that swahili works too these are multilingual people you know they're going to be able to get around um in in a few different languages but english not right now yeah. and so so I was just always having, like, you're going to interface as a teacher, as a nurse, as a speech pathologist with people who are different from you, who've come from another culture, who speak a different language, who have a different sexual orientation, who have a disability or, you know, some kind of um, accommodation is needed. Like, you have to be able to interface and interact and serve people who aren't like you. And so think about that. And what does this mean for their experience? You know, we had te- we had a lot of uh, Burundian kids who grew up in refugee camps that were having a hard time in school because they had the, like my, my kids have a hard time sitting still for that long. Like it's, it's just not right. I don't think to have kids sit still that long, but especially for them, it was, it was incongruent with their culture right. and their experiences. So instead of and they and they felt uncomfortable in a lot of other different ways too, yeah. I'm sure. So having like a little bit of patience for that and a little bit of grace and coming at it in a different way and talking to the parents and engaging an interpreter, you know, little things like that can make a huge difference for a family and just learning how to navigate the world. And so ref, you know, that refugee lens was a big one, but in my class we talk about a lot of different things too. Um, we talk about the gener- generational wealth gaps. What's that? Uh, so um, we talk about like how different policies impact communities of color. So the GI Bill was huge in terms of making housing affordable for a lot of people and really building the middle class. That happened predominantly for white people. Right. That served. Yeah. Black men and their families were... Um, were denied loans. Um, there, Even there though was, they had served in the military? Yeah, there really? was redlining. And so without having the ability to purchase homes back then meant not developing an asset that would then be passed on. And so mm. we have these huge, huge wealth inequalities right now that we're seeing. So when people... They have generational implications, although they happened a while ago. Yeah, absolutely. Gotcha. So the average, you know white family might have a net worth of like 80 to a hundred thousand dollars. Um, the average black family three to four thousand to thousand. Yeah. Huge, huge difference. Yeah. That's a huge disparity on, on the population level. That doesn't mean everybody, obviously it doesn't right. mean, but, but, but you average it all out. That's where it yeah. lands. And so you see, you know, you see that segregation in Knoxville right now. I mean, there are neighborhoods that are predominantly, black or predominantly um, communities of color and then you have predominantly white neighborhoods. I mean these are these are a result of policies that happened a long time ago. And why is that? And what does that mean? And what does that mean for the educational opportunities? What does that mean 
for a future career? What does that mean for all those things? And it's not to say that there aren't ways to get around that or to beat that, but it just means it takes a whole hell of a lot more effort, you know? Yeah. It's it's amazing that, that, you know, I like to think that we live in this super enlightened part of the world and all that, but mm -hmm. I go to Atlanta or something like that and, or a city like Atlanta or a city like, you know, Memphis, maybe a little less so, but like here, it's still very much, there's a black neighborhood here. Mm -hmm. There's a Hispanic neighborhood right next to it. And there's another black neighborhood on the other side of it. And all the white people live in West Knoxville. Yeah. And it makes it, you know, I feel guilty a little bit because of it. Just, yeah, just because I'm white maybe, Mm -hmm. but, Mm -hmm. but also it makes me wonder how did we get, how do we get here and, and why? Yeah. And, and what does it mean going forward? How do we, how do we fix it? Because it really makes it makes me sad. Because it, I, I feel like it should not be that way. Yeah. But it has been that way for a long time. When I lived in Park Ridge, there were, um, yeah, you know, they were going through this um, H one uh, the the historic overlay, uh, which which mandates what you can and can't do to your house, or your house has to be in a certain, oh, yeah. you know, it has to be in a. a, a, a if you're going to repair your house, it has to be, you know, according to the code. Right. And it, and it came across as this big like gentrification uh, effort that ultimately did, I don't think landed, but it, what it did for me was it made me realize that three generations of family have lived in this house. This house has been paid off, you know, for 60 or 70 years. And this family has continued to live in this house and they have, have, gotten by however they've had to get by. Um, but you know, they, they certainly haven't thrived financially. And now you're telling them that if they redo their front porch steps, they have, it has to be three quarter inch pine and it has to, you know, and it has, it has to meet these code requirements. And that, you know, it, it made me realize that, you know, going into these go, go, it, it, I think more than anything, it made me realize that, people have lived certain uh, ways, especially in in impoverished areas for generations. And they've been fine. They've made it through to your point about people being resilient. Um, But that's not like they should have an opportunity to also to thrive. Yeah. And I think just a a little bit of uh, educating people on that is probably very helpful it sounds like, um, because it sounds like your, uh, your course that you teach, it sounds like to me that it's a big course in perspective, um, more, more than anything. And, and I, I don't have it and didn't have it until I had that experience, uh, where I realized I was the out outlier. Um, and it's been generations of people that have been getting by just fine, uh, before me, but they weren't able to grow or, or, or buy a house and Getty's view. <laughs> yeah, get ahead. Yeah. <laughs> to get ahead. But it does it does sound like is that right? Like your your course is 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 gaining perspective across not just race, class, but also ability. Um and just yeah. letting, letting you know that not everybody's yeah. middle class and white. Yeah, exactly. And we it's it's interesting you say that because a lot of the students happen to be white and a lot of them um are women, but and they do a really good job talking about race, I think. But when we start talking about class, it's harder. And they, because they kind of know what to say when it comes to race, they know how to not be offensive in a classroom. But you don't, you can't tell in the classroom 
who grew up poor or who grew up some kind of way. So they'll end up saying things and it gets a little bit dicier. Really? But you said, you know, how how do you fix it? And I think a lot of my reading has to do with like knowing where it comes from, figuring it out, listening to perspectives, like read black women, read black women, mm. do it, like read what they write and read all of it. There's so many women, black women writing amazing things. And so, and listen to them. And so like, what are their experiences? Where's, where are these things coming from? Read the research. The color of law is a really great place to like learn about segregation, super dense and kind of dry, but you know, so figuring that out. And then also how do you translate that? Like, what do you do? Because, you know, the students are saying, well, I'm not racist. You're part of a racist society. Racism doesn't mean you're a bad person doing mean things to people that look different from you. Of course, you're not doing that. You know, some people are. Some people are pretty terrible. But that's like, that's not how it operates right now. It operates in a very clandestine way right now. It happens through these policies that look neutral, that look race neutral, but they're not. Mm. Because they end up you know, cutting out a class of people or language like surveys, not having a non-binary option, you know, not having a place for yourself, the way we categorize race and ethnicity on forms, you know. And so I say, wherever you are and whatever power you have, use that. Think about things with this lens, this race, class, gender, ability lens and make decisions intentionally to disrupt the system and disrupt the power here. So I'm a white woman in charge of $6 million at the University of Tennessee. I have some power in the programs that I have. So I hire, you know, my, I have a strategic goal to reach, you know, refugee and immigrant families. I'm going to be translating first into the languages of the people that need it the most. I was fighting to pay people more. I'm not trying to save money. I'm not trying to save money in my salary line item. I want to pay people more, and I want to pay people more who are bilingual. We don't do that right now. Um, I want to look at our hiring process. It's really hard to get a job at UT. It's a difficult system. Someone that doesn't speak English as a first language might have a little bit more difficulty with the nuances of the system, even if they have really advanced English. Mm. Um, there's things like that that you like when you do some perspective taking – and when you understand where some of these things come from, you can say, hey, that might actually not work. Even in meetings, I mean, thinking about gender and power, like if we're in a mixed gender meeting and I notice that a woman isn't speaking up or had kind of an idea, but, you know, someone's interrupting and it's, it's usually a man, um, you know, I'd say like, hey, Kelsey, what was your idea? Like, mm. what was that? Yeah. Like, use what power you have. To give a voice. Mm -hmm. to open it up for their for them pay people more pay people more read black women cite black women they know <laughs> follow them you know and you know put people where they can have influence right now i have a decision on who's going to be on the hiring committee me or a woman of color and i'm going to choose her it's putting your money where your mouth is yeah I I stopped a hire because there was there, this woman was saying some things, and that, I knew that this, were red flags, super red flags. But it was they were subtle, yeah. and I was in a group, and I know how groups work because the psychology degree, and you know, someone just has to break the ice, and then it can all kind of fall down. And a woman of color came to me later and was like, "I'm so glad you said that." 
Really? I'm so glad you said that. She would have been, I'm so, thank you for but doing that. But she wasn't going to say anything about it. She, and it was my job because, you know, her in this room had a different, had a different power, you know, and I had it. And so I was like, absolutely not. I'm not sending that woman into classrooms where she's going to offend a big group of people. I don't care if she speaks Spanish or not. <laughs> and she wasn't. Well, that wasn't her first language. Right. She learned it. And I'm glad she learned it. That's really great for her. But she needs, you know, she also, the first thing she said was like, I don't have any tattoos or anything. And I was like, oh boy, <laughs> you're on a Zoom interview. I'm sure like half the people here have tattoos. Sure. And that's not like a bad thing anymore. No, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> okay. Well. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I was amazed with, with your work that I knew that you did before we sat down and, and talked today, but like, I'm even, even more so now. And it's, it's really great to talk to you because, uh, I just, I loved, I love talking to people who make me feel dumb. And you just, <laughs> you, you know, so much about, about, uh, uh, you just have such great perspective on society and, uh, how poly facing it is. And it's not just, you know, one, straight road with a couple little turns on it it's a lot bigger yeah, than that yeah and I, I really appreciate you uh providing that perspective to me and i hope everybody gets that gets what i got from it because it's it's important my mind's a little blown right now <laughs> well i'm uh so flattered sometimes mm. you know i'm not the most fun at uh parties <laughs> like the professor's here and she's talking about racism again but <laughs> i'm happy you're excited about it <laughs> you're a good follow on instagram too. yeah i gotta tell you that am i <laughs> oh yeah yes make you think man yeah yeah just little thinkers and a lot of cute kids yeah pictures Thanks for coming and thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank and I'm you. very glad to see you. Likewise. I yeah. love hanging out with you, Ben. Yeah, me too. Take care and we'll see you uh, real soon. Who knows? We may do it again. Awesome. Be good. All right. How'd we do? I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks for being here. Come back next week. Check us out. Uh, if you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash south of scruffy. That's how we keep the lights on. We appreciate everybody's support out there. Uh, also, this episode's up on YouTube. If you want to check that out, you can find it on our YouTube channel. Follow us on Instagram for updates and all the fun stuff. Engage with us. That's always a good time. And take care of yourselves. And take care of each other. Love you guys. Be good. Talk to you next week, all right? Pitch wire. Play me out.